So apologies. Um, I should have said at the very beginning, it's my pleasure. We've got uh, a guest, I say guest, you're one of our members here. So Linda Pepper is going to come and um, preach to us this morning. I'm just going to pray for Linda before we, before she starts. Lord, I just want to um, thank you for Linda. I just want to ask that you would fill her full of your presence this morning, Lord. Would you just bless her as she speaks to us, Lord? Would you speak to her and use her to speak to us, Lord? Would you open our ears to hear what you have to tell us this morning? Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. So yes, I'm Linda Pepper. I'm a member here and it is my privilege this morning to be able to share with you from the reading that we've just had. I was joking at the beginning of the service with people saying, sometimes we have a really long reading and we don't look at any of it. Today, we've had a really short reading, but we're going to look at all of it. Okay, so that's what we are doing today. We are going to focus our attention on this very short bit from John's Gospel. But we're going to start off with a story. In the year 296, Britain was covered with woodland, pretty much. There were foreigners who lived here. I'm not quite sure who they were, but it was a bit of a pagan country. In Rome, on the other hand, in the year 296, there was an emperor, there was civilization, there was the Colosseum, there had been Paul preaching, there had been the experience of Christianity coming to that country. In the middle of it, there was a man who was prepared to stand up for what he believed was right. Imagine the scene. The Roman army was enormous. The Romans were taking over the whole of the known world as far as they knew it. They wanted power and they had it. And there was a man who said, some of what you're doing is not right. One of the things that Claudius, who was the then emperor of Rome, said was, no man who is in the Roman army is allowed to be married. Because if a man is married, then he will think more about his wife and his family than he will about thinking about Rome, about thinking about our great nation, about wanting to go forward and to fight. A priest, a Christian priest, began to marry people in secret. People who were committed to each other, people who were willing to promise their lives one-on-one, however short or however long that life might be. His name was Valentine. Valentine was the priest who stood up to the Emperor Claudius. In 269 AD, he was killed. He was murdered because he refused to go, his, to go the way that the Roman emperor wanted. 
Isn't it impressive that almost 2,000 years later, we are still celebrating a day in his name? I don't know how many of you this morning got cards or flowers or chocolates or breakfast in bed or any of those other things I can imagine. (laughs) Today is Valentine's Day, but to be honest, whether you got any or all of those things or not, what we're focusing on today is the fact that we are loved anyway. Imagine Jesus looking at his disciples right in the eye, eyeball to eyeball, and saying, I have loved you. I have loved you in the same way that the Father has loved me. Imagine Jesus saying that to us today. I have loved you, and I still do. I love you just like the Father has loved me. John earlier on tells us that God loved the world so much, he was willing to give Jesus for the sake of the world. He was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice of separation so that Jesus could come to this earth and be with us. And then scripture goes on to say some of the things that God thinks of us because of his love for us. We read in Ephesians that God thinks of us as his masterpiece. How good is that? We read that he calls us his children. How precious is that? God loves us even when nobody else does. God remains faithful and true. What is God's love like? A long time ago, in a world far away, I had a relationship of the romantic kind that fell apart. I was in my early 20s and I was absolutely devastated. How could it happen? We'd been at university together. We'd made promises to each other. We'd actually got as far as getting engaged and a wedding being planned for the following year. And then all of a sudden something went wrong. I remember the phone call where this relationship had come to an end. In fairness, I think if I had been more forgiving by temperament, we might have been able to carry on, but whoa, no, no, no. I was devastated, and for a long time I thought, well, Nobody else will ever love me. Can you identify with that feeling? Nobody else is ever going to want me. 
Nobody else is going to make me feel so fantastic in my tummy every time I see them cross the room. Nobody else is going to have this effect on my life. And I remember praying with a friend about it, talking to her and saying, I've just never felt like this before. I've never felt so lost or so empty. And as we prayed, I genuinely felt the most incredible feeling. It felt like God was giving me a hug. There is no other way of describing it. There wasn't anybody physical with me. My friend definitely wasn't giving me a hug because, you know, Christians didn't used to be quite so touchy-feely as they are now. So she wasn't giving me the hug, but I felt like God was giving me this massive hug. God was saying to me in a way that I could understand at the time. God was saying, I love you. But is love just something that is based on feelings? Well, most of you know that actually somebody else did decide to love me and that this year we are celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary. I am sure that last night, Dave's first thought when my snoring woke him up and he could not go back to sleep, I am sure he did not feel overwhelming sense of love for me. I am pretty sure that if he'd had the opportunity to put a pillow over my head, he could easily have done so. Love is not just a feeling. Let's explore it a little bit more and see if we can find any more content for this. God's love for Jesus was eternal. They were together from forever. There is no time in God. There will be no conclusion of time in God. God simply is, and God simply is together with Jesus, who simply is. Isn't that an incredible truth to try and get our human minds around? We can't, we are so time-bound that we can't really contemplate it. But God's love for Jesus is eternal and true. And imagine what it was like for God and Jesus in the beginning. Together with the Holy Spirit, they had a conversation. And together, God in his one in threeness decided to make the rest of the universe. But before they made the rest of the universe, God was And God was completely content in his love within the Godhead. That's hard for us to imagine, but it's true. So God's love for Jesus was before 
Jesus came to earth. It was while Jesus was on earth. And it continues now that Jesus has gone back to heaven. But was it always easy? That's the question that I've just asked about our love for each other. One of the verses that Chris read to us says that Jesus was able to demonstrate his love for God. Sorry, it wasn't. It was just before what she read. Where he says, I will do what the Father requires of me so that the world will know that I love the Father. God the Father asked God the Son to leave his presence. He asked Jesus to leave glory. Can you imagine that? He asked Jesus to go to this far distant planet called Earth. He asked Jesus to limit himself. Jesus was God, but Jesus was also fully man. And as fully man, Jesus could not do some of the things or chose not to do some of the things that God can and does do. Jesus chose to be limited in order to do what God had asked him to do, in order to be obedient to him. He had the limitations of time and space, but more than that, He took on the limitations of what it means to be human in our emotions, in our understanding, in our ability to to cope with all of the experiences of life. Jesus took those things on because he was obedient to the Father. Jesus accepted what the Father asked him to do, and was committed to following through on it. Valentine accepted what he believed to be the truth that God wanted for man and woman to be together in harmony. And he lived following that ideal. Jesus was committed to the Father and was obedient to him. What about how Jesus loved his disciples? Three years, day and night, walking, talking, sleeping, eating, fishing, being on a boat, climbing a mountain. Three years of questions, Three years of a complete lack of understanding. Three years of, well, John, Peter, James, why aren't you getting it? Why aren't you understanding what I'm saying? Three years of going on and on together with this small group. Jesus demonstrated his love for his disciples by his presence with them, but also by the fact that he was willing to challenge them, to discipline them, to teach them, to help them. I 
just picked out one word there. The story in Mark is about Peter. It's about how Peter, this great dynamic disciple who was responsible for so much, this man and Jesus, sometimes they just came head to head with each other. Peter says some of the greatest things about Jesus. When Jesus asks his disciples who they think he is, it's Peter who says, you are the Messiah. But of all the disciples, it's to Peter that Jesus said, get you behind me, Satan. How harsh is that? Peter and Jesus had a dynamic relationship where Jesus had to show his love for him by disciplining him and helping him to grow and helping him to change so that at Pentecost, it was Peter who was able to stand up and preach this great sermon and see 3,000 people become Christians all together on one day. And Peter could only do that because of the relationship that he had had with Jesus and because Jesus had been prepared to work at that relationship of love with him. Doesn't it sound a little bit like we think of our relationship with children? If a parent fails to demonstrate discipline to odds their children... Is that a parent who we would say was genuinely loving? I think I might go further. A parent who fails to discipline their children is actually the opposite of loving. It's a parent who doesn't care enough in order to teach their children right from wrong, in order to give their child the a realistic expectation of the world, a a great idea of morality and boundaries and excess and authority. A parent needs to do all of those things if they're going to demonstrate love for their children as well as all of the touchy-feely stuff, as well as the providing security and shelter, the providing of genuine care and attention. But a parent has to be able to discipline their children as well. What was the response when Jesus acted like this? Well, the disciples learnt that in order to show their love for Jesus, they needed to be obedient. That's what the verses that Chris read say. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. The marriage command says that if you make promises to one other person, then you should seek to live up to them. And I know for all sorts of reasons that becomes impossible. But you walk into marriage with that ideal in mind. 
you walk into relationship with God with the ideal in mind that you will be obedient to him, that you will follow him. There's a massive difference between following somebody because you are afraid of them and following somebody because you love them. Jesus is asking his disciples to be obedient to him out of love from their hearts for him, not because they are afraid of what he will do if they are not obedient. Does that make sense? It's a completely different way of looking at. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Yes, God loves us whatever we do and God loves us all of the time. That is a truth and it's a true truth. God does. But God also wants us to be obedient to his commands. So we have to say love for God according to this passage actually means being obedient to God. And what kind of tone does that obedience have? Well, it has the tone of joyfulness. It's when we are walking with God in obedience and following him as well as we can with his Holy Spirit's help, then we are able to experience real joy in him then we are able to experience his great love for us in a fuller and fuller way. Does that make sense? We have to do something in this relationship as well. And because God is God, God doesn't just leave us floundering. He doesn't just say, well, okay, just be obedient to me. And we're all left there thinking, well, what, what does that mean? What is obedience to God? Throughout the entire scripture, he said the same things again and again and again. Way back in Exodus, he starts it all off, and we're just going to clump the commandments together into four very quick sections. In order to follow God's commandments, we have to have right devotion to him. Worship moves us. Worship changes who we are. We cannot sing truthfully from our hearts the words of our worship songs unless we are allowing God to change our hearts and our minds. That's why I think God says at the beginning of the commandments that what we think of him is actually the most important commands for us to follow. These two commands are talking about how we should put God first and how we should spend a special day worshipping him together. We need to do that. We need to do that because it increases our joy in him. It gives us the opportunity to come together with his people and to say, yes, God is good. 
For these reasons, God is good. And we are commanded to really think about what that devotion means on a weekly level, on a daily level, on a putting God first in my life all of the time level, in a not letting anything else get in the way of God level. It's fine for me to say I love Dave because it's true. But if by my actions, I actually demonstrate that I love myself far, far more, that I love other people far, far more. Is there any truth in the the sentence, I love Dave? Loving Dave means choosing to spend time with him. It means Choosing sometimes to put his choices above my choices. It means sometimes not actually getting what I want. It's not perhaps the best illustration, but it might help us to just see. So why is devotion to God so important? Because our worship together and our worship individually demonstrates our devotion to God. Even when it is hard, even when it's not what we feel like doing, it's still a necessary part of what it is to be in a loving relationship with the living God. The next couple of commands are about right speech. Okay, so I grew up in a Christian home. I've never blasphemed in my life because I was never taught to. It just didn't happen for me. But there is a different way of misusing God's name. And I believe that we we can so easily fall into it. We really want something. We really believe it's a good thing. And there is nothing in scripture to say that it's a bad thing. And so we talk about it as God has said that. I'm not sure that some of the things we say that about are actually any more than Wishful thinking. I think we have to be really, really careful about saying, God has said. Because I think it's one way in which we can misuse God's name. It's one way when we can just let our own imaginations run a riot. I think we need to be tentative in the way that we express what God wants for us, for us as individuals, and for us corporately as a church. And I think we need to really test some of the things that that we say. 
And that's not easy. Paul and Peter, they, I'd love to meet them. You know, if I was hosting a dinner party and I could have anybody at the dinner party that I wanted, I'd actually really like to have both of them together in the same time because they seem to think quite differently about various things. And there's this great story uh, where Paul and Peter have this great disagreement. It's all about what food they should eat and how they should behave when they are with Gentile Christians or Jewish Christians. And it's a bit complicated. But the bottom line is, I am sure that both of those men believed that God had said something to them. I believe that because they were men of integrity. They wanted to follow God. But it so easily leads to different camps, doesn't it? God has said this. God has said this. And they are opposites. They can't both be right. So together, the church at Jerusalem had to think about it and work it out. Well, what actually is the truth between these two different ways of behavior? And they came to an agreement. And that's our job as God's people living together in this community to test and to sort and to speak to one another and to hear from God but not too quickly to jump to the conclusion and to use his name. Right conduct. How do we know if we are following God, if we are obedient to his commands? Well, we need to have right conduct. Towards our parents is the first one. And then towards others, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lie. It's all about actually how important other people are and how we relate to them. Most of us could say very easily, I don't do lots of the things on this list. I've never murdered anybody. I don't steal, never committed adultery. We could say those things. But what about this? The last part of the commandment sums it all up as right thinking. Don't be jealous. Don't hate. And don't lust after. Aren't they so different, aren't they, from the easy things we can say no to? I haven't done it in the first part of that those commandments. Right conduct, but also right thinking. God wants us to work at this relationship with him. He wants us to allow the Holy Spirit to so change us from the inside out that following him in obedience becomes second nature to us. That that is what thrills us and gives us most joy rather than get in our own way, or doing our own thing. God wants us to change. He loves us so much, just as we are. But he doesn't want to leave us there. 
That's what growing in discipleship is all about. It's about a journey. It's about a journey of transformation that never stops. I love the way that as I go on in the Christian life, I become more aware of areas of sinfulness in myself rather than less. I become more aware of the need for God's spirit to keep touching me every day. Dave will testify to you that on the days when I have had a really good quiet time, I am so much nicer to live with than on the days when I don't. Being obedient to God changes me. It changes my response, my attitude, my lifestyle, my choices, my worship. Obedience changes everything. And there's one more aspect from this very short section of scripture. How should disciples, that's us, how should we love others? This is my commandment, says Jesus to his disciples. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. It means learning together, walking together, practicing together, being honest with each other, being patient with each other. Praying for each other. Disciplining each other. It does mean all of those things. It means growing together in harmony based on truth. And it also means this. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. It's about the sacrificial use of our time and our resources and our emotions and our homes. It's about putting others first, essentially. It's about learning to be like Valentine. It's about saying, this is so important that it matters to me more than life itself. Caring for others in our community. Caring for each other. It is more important than getting my own way. And that's true. So, it's been a talk all about love, but maybe not as you would have expected. It's not the fluffy feeling side of love. Fluffy feelings go away. They're a bit like a hot air balloon which is released from its strings. It keeps floating up and up and up and in the end it disappears. And that doesn't mean that you don't get glimpses of that again. It doesn't mean that your that love is not real but it means that your love is different and actually more wonderful 
because it is different. Your love has to be deeper in order for it to last. I am hoping that I will keep practicing for the next 25 years. That's what I want to do with Dave, but also with God. I want my love to be deeper and deeper and deeper for him. And I'd like us to keep going in that direction together as well. Thank you for your patience in listening this morning.